Hello, Splashcasters, and welcome back to the second episode of the Splashcast, where we talk about all things water. I'm your host, Sarah Sales. I've come down with a bit of a cold, so I hope you'll bear with me. I'm still excited about what we can learn about water in this show. Do you know the difference between weather and climate? Lots of people don't, so today we're going to jump right into atmospheric rivers, how weather in one part of the world can influence weather somewhere else completely, and what you can do in your own hometown to be a weather and climate scientist. If you had a great fifth grade science teacher like I did, then you probably know a little bit about the hydrologic cycle. Water never disappears. We can never have less water on Earth than we have now. It just enters the cycle in one of its many forms and moves from place to place and person to person. At its most simple, we think of water falling to Earth in the form of rain or snow, melting to form rivers, flowing to cities and farms where it's used in return to some channel, whether that's a river, an aquifer, or a municipal water system, We know some makes its way to the oceans of the world, and some of it evaporates and rejoins the atmosphere, where the cycle begins again. I'm sure you can imagine that there's much more to this huge, complex, global system, but this is actually a pretty good way to look at it in nutshell form. The water on this planet is constantly in motion, and one of the most interesting things scientists have discovered about that motion is a phenomena called atmospheric rivers. We all know what rivers are on Earth, but who knew there were rivers of water vapor moving thousands of miles through our atmosphere with implications for predicting weather patterns much earlier than our current models have been able to do. I had to learn more, so I reached out to Corey Baggett, a postdoctoral fellow at Colorado State University who works with a team that is creating some really interesting science. Hello, my name is Corey Baggett. I'm working up at Colorado State University as a postdoctoral fellow. I'm in uh, Elizabeth Barnes and Eric Maloney's research groups, and uh, what we're currently focusing on right now is improving predictions of uh, weather at sub-seasonal timescales. And by sub-seasonal, I mean in that three to five week period. A big picture question. What is the difference between weather and climate? And you know why I'm asking you this, because a lot of people are like, oh, climate change. Well, it's just weather and the weather always changes. Mm -hmm. So I want you to answer why those two things are different and maybe how they connect to each other. I like to think of an analogy in terms of baseball. So if you have a baseball game, Pitcher goes out, he throws strikes, he throws balls and whatnot. Batter goes out, he hits a home run, he strikes out. That's kind of like weather on a a daily baseball game. But over the course of an entire baseball season, a pitcher is going to accumulate a certain ERA. Um, A batter is going to have a certain uh, um, number of home runs or hits over the course of the season. That's kind of that batter or that pitcher's climate. Um, So it's very similar in terms of weather versus climate. You have these short time scales and longer time scales. So climate would be like the average temperature during December, the average amount of rain a region receives. Um, But it's also extremes, and I think that's important Mm. to keep in mind. Um, So, for instance, here in Colorado, an extreme event would be a blizzard, maybe three to four feet of snow, and that's an extreme. Or you have extreme heat waves, uh, or you have extreme cold waves. Mm -hmm. Um, All those are extremes, and that make up the climate too. So like in Florida, 
an extreme, you would not expect an extreme blizzard to happen in Florida. That's not part of their climate, but you would expect it maybe in New York City or Boston. So it's important to keep in mind these extremes are a part of climate as well. Tell us about atmospheric rivers and how and why they're interesting to study. Oh, so atmospheric rivers are very interesting. Just kind of put in perspective, they're, they're rivers in the sky, I think is one way of describing. Uh, it's just tons and tons of water being transported by the winds, enormous distances, thousands and thousands of miles. In fact, like one atmospheric river in the sky is capable of transporting as much water as say the Mississippi River. Wow. And that's a tremendous amount of water. Yeah. So these, so these atmospheric rivers, we're studying them along the west coast of North America because that is where the west coast gets much of their precipitation on a year-to-year basis, um, particularly, say, during October through February, those months where atmospheric rivers are climatologically most common. So sometimes these atmospheric rivers occur very frequently in a given winter. They may happen over and over again, or sometimes they don't happen at all. So you can imagine a situation like in California two winters ago, winter of 2016-17, where they were, uh, there were pictures in the news about the floods, uh, the Oroville Dam spillway perhaps mm-hmm. collapsing, um, mudslides. All those sort of things can happen when you have atmospheric river, atmospheric river, because they provide so much precipitation in such a short period of time. But at the same time, they're really beneficial for California and Oregon and Washington because they need that rain. They need that water to get them to the dry season of summer. In terms of like reservoir management, it's really important to know if you're going to have a season with a lot of atmospheric river or low atmospheric river. So these reservoirs that hold all the water for California and other places along the West Coast, um, if you don't get these atmospheric rivers during the winter time, then they're going to have very, very low water supplies come summer. And that's very bad. So in that situation, if you have a seasonal forecast, if you know there's going to be a lack of atmospheric rivers. Maybe you don't draw down those reservoirs as much during the winter months and vice versa. If you know there's lots of atmospheric rivers coming, um, you can let the water down and make room for the new water that comes off the mountains through snow melt during uh, spring melt season and whatnot. So this past winter was uh, two winters ago, like I said, is when they had all these atmospheric rivers. And it's kind of like a little side effect of these atmospheric rivers is when you get a lot of them, California greens up. You have lots of vegetation, you have lots of grass, lots of shrubs, lots of brush, weeds, whatnot, and it grows and it grows fast and abundantly. And this past summer, it was very dry again. Mm-hmm. So all this new growth dried out and became very parched. And, and, and that's one of the reasons we had these tremendous wildfires this past mm-hmm. fall. So it, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of important effects these atmospheric rivers have on, on your climate and day-to-day weather, even in California. The team Corey works with in Colorado was recently published for some groundbreaking research into how such things as atmospheric rivers and other predictors can allow for weather forecasts much farther in advance than current models will allow. This is spearheaded by one of my colleagues, uh, Brian Mundhank. He's, he just recently graduated with his PhD. And what we did was we tried to find a way to find an atmospheric signal that exists now, like today. All right, if this, it like, and if this signal exists today, does this signal tell us about something that's gonna happen with atmospheric rivers in the future? We focused on these tropical rainstorms over the equator. And, and these, these rainstorms are very influential for the weather several weeks down the road. You can think of these rainstorms like, as, like dropping a, a stone in a pond and they send ripples, okay? So these rainstorms are massive, they're enormous, and they can actually disrupt the atmosphere. Think of these rainstorms developing, and sending a ripple throughout the rest of the earth when they happen. Uh. 
Okay, so these rainstorms actually have a name. They're called the Madden-Julian Oscillation. And they have this remarkable 30 to 60 day period where they go around the equator on a very regular basis. So, so these big waves, these ripples in the atmosphere, these ripples set up in a certain way that it directs atmospheric rivers into particular locations along the West Coast. It's kind of a steering flow, so to speak. So the Madden-Julie oscillation affects that steering flow. And once these atmospheric rivers find themselves in that steering flow, they're directed either one place or another along the West Coast of North America. So Brian came up with uh, kind of a, a, a forecast model is what he came up with. And he uses the current state of these rainstorms, the Madden-Julian oscillation, and he's able to skillfully forecast atmospheric river activity two to three, even five weeks in advance. Cool. Um, and I'm not talking like this particular day at this particular CD. I'm talking about more of a broad picture. Like we expect enhanced atmospheric river activity over maybe Northern California, during week four, perhaps. So it's kind of like a broader picture that way, but it's useful information all the same. I asked Corey if the group's research was continuing in the same vein, and he said there was still indeed much to dig into here. While finding out why numerical models aren't as accurate as they could be in predicting such things as atmospheric rivers would be valuable, he had something else a little more interesting in mind. Another way of looking at this is, okay, we've, we've seen that the Madden-Julian oscillation affects atmospheric rivers, but does it affect other things, right? Does it influence perhaps severe weather outbreaks like tornadoes and hail over the central United States? That's another thing we're looking at right now, and we're happy to say that it does seem to, to have a nice influence, and there might be some predictive ability using the Madden-Julian oscillation for these tornado and hail events. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you are like really excited to talk about? You're at New Mexico State University, uh -huh. right? Mm -hmm. So you have a good idea of how important water is for your state and Arizona and everything else. Maybe this is a question I just direct back to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how much longer do your states have before That's water scarcity is an issue? So yeah, Yeah, and that is definitely what we're working on. I mean, everything... There's almost no one in our program who isn't working on some aspect of that question. Well, I wasn't expecting my guest to turn the tables and interview me, so I quickly changed the subject and asked him if there was any call to action he could give you, my listeners, regarding climate or weather. I think in terms of water management, that's where our listeners and myself, we have to be very mindful. Um, the West, it's, it's rain or no rain, and when it doesn't rain, it's terrible. And the populations continue to grow. So it's not just a weather and climate issue. It's also a population issue. Whatever we can do to manage our water supplies now, and I think uh, like Arizona and Mexico have done a fairly nice job with it in preparing for the future, but um, it's still something to be cognizant of. Um, you look at California with these wildfires they had this past uh, summer, a couple of summers ago, three or four summers ago, they had massive water restrictions. So anything we can do to prepare um, for these low water periods would be very beneficial to do. If you're interested in more about atmospheric rivers, Corey recommended a visit to the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes, a group working out of the Scripps Institute at UC San Diego. The site can be found at cw3e.ucsd.edu. There will also be links on the blog to the Barnes Group, which Corey works with at Colorado State, as well as more information on their work and atmospheric rivers in general at NOAA.
Stay tuned, there's more water talk to come. Humans on the Street. Humans on the Street. This episode's Human on the Street interviews were actually conducted at the annual meeting of the USDA-funded project for which I'm a research assistant. So we were technically a bunch of researchers in a room, not so much humans on the street, but I didn't want to make a whole new... Hey, there it is. Our project is, among other things, creating a thorough model of the hydrology and water uses in a particular region of New Mexico, Texas, and Mexico. And we have researchers from five universities, four states, and two countries. Would you start by telling my listeners who you are, what you're researching, and where? My name is Alfredo Granados, and I'm a professor uh, over the last 30 years at the University of Ciudad Juarez, I uh, work with water resources, natural resources, soil resources, and mostly my uh, work in the last couple of years had to do with water, energy, and, and food production. Hi, my name is Josiah Hyman. I'm the uh, director of the Center for Inter-American and Border Studies at the University of uh, Texas at El Paso, and I work in the uh, U.S.-Mexico border region. My name is uh, Frank Ward. And I am a professor of water economics and policy at the esteemed uh, New Mexico State University, wishing I could be a center fielder for the New York Yankees, uh, but in fact being a graduate student advisor in the agricultural economics and ag business department. I'm Ali Mirchi. I'm a research assistant professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. Uh, my research focuses on uh, developing models to study water resources uh, management, in the face of climate change, uh, demand growth, and, and things like that. What, in your opinion, is the most important or critical water issue or problem? A constructive dialogue about management of wa- scarce water resources is the most critical issue, in my opinion, because we have a you know natural input to our systems, which is governed by the hydrologic cycle, but uh, people manage this system pretty heavily, so that human influence is important in a lot of respects. And it's important to have a good and constructive and substantial conversation to be able to manage the system in a way that you know everybody can, can gain and nobody will lose out to the point that they're completely out of the game. Uh, it's the long-term decline in groundwater in the region. Um, w- groundwater is sort of like our savings bank, um, and we pull out of it when there's uh, river drought. And um, as a result of long-term um, over-demand and, and river drought, we end up with uh, withdrawing from the groundwater repeatedly, and it's going down. I would say the most important water issue is the search for sustainable uh, water policies that enable uh, communities to grow and thrive in the face of growing evidence of climate stress, as well as reduced surface water supplies, as well as uh, falling groundwater supplies, much as Joe said. The way that we see it over there on the Mexican side is that water will come from wherever there is, but that would cost a lot. So that's not the main issue right now. And it depends on the num- number of people that you're you know, managing and 
providing the resource for. But the main issue in here is governance. Mm. So the problem in the Mexican side is how the different institutions talk to each other. So this is an interdisciplinary challenge in here. I spoke with more than I could include in a single episode, so you'll hear from our research team in future episodes as well. Our opinions do not necessarily represent the opinions of our various universities or our funding agency, the United States Department of Agriculture. At the top of the show, we were talking about how weather and climate differ. It started to become clear that water is a huge part of both weather and climate, an integral ingredient, you might say. To learn more, it seemed like a good idea to check in with the New Mexico State climatologist Dave Dubois, a great teacher at my university who loves explaining how climate is an important part in our everyday lives. So like Sarah said, I'm Dave Dubois. I'm the state climatologist for New Mexico. And what state climatologists do is they assess climate. They provide climate information to anybody who asks for it. Um, come up with, not that we come up with problems, but there's always problems out there that, that really need um, you know, a climate solution. Everything from agriculture to transportation to tourism to health. Climate is a key part of that right now. So you just think about every part of your life that you think of agriculture, food, food security, all has a climate uh, aspect to it. I first met Dave when I took his class on climate change back in 2016. He is a truly amazing educator who is always willing to share his knowledge with the outside world. I want to start with kind of a big picture question. How are water and climate related? Well, I think, I think through like the water cycle, it's just kind of picture that in your mind. All the things are going on simultaneously, and it depends on where you are, you know, your perspective. You know, we're, we're on the surface, so we, uh, we kind of look down and up. And when we see the, the mountains and the surface water, the groundwater, the oceans, and, uh, the, you know, the cryosphere is also part of that. And it's, it's sort of the all, all the above is sort of the, uh, you know, the aspects of, of climate into that. When it rains, you see it running down the streets. That precipitation goes somewhere. It quickly goes into hydrology, you know. But but it, and, you know, where does it, where does that go in terms of evaporation? And then you, and then this time of year, it's snow when we like to see it come down as white, as opposed to the liquid stuff. So if that entire hydrologic cycle we talked about at the beginning of the show is related to the climate. You can see how important Dave's job is as the one person in the state who really has to keep a handle on all climate-related things around the state. What water issues are everyday people going to have to deal with because of climate change? That's a really good question, and it, you know, like you said, it all depends on what perspective you come in, come from. Um, I'm just addressing one of them is our food. You know, I love chili. You know, I, I can, I'll take it red or green, um, but that's, you know, that water, you, you got to have water to, to grow anything here. The, the big threat 
basically it's the lack of water for when we need it. All the models or most of the models are showing that the change is going to be an early, earlier runoff and likely less uh, snow water equivalent storage, which translates into um, not a lot of water coming down our rivers. We know our systems are designed with that in mind. You got to have water coming down the rivers and we store it in various places and we have people who use it and we're we're just one link along that path for our chili climate has got, has has a major impact on all of our all of our lives it may seem ir- irrelevant but uh, sea level rise impacts new mexico and then and you may say hmm so how's that <laughs> so what just think about what's on my desk like i've got a bunch of stuff on my desk and some of it's plastic computers mm-hmm. where does it come from and a lot of it's you know uh, overseas so it's a matter of where you know where do they make batteries where do they make the screens mm-hmm. and and it has to come from somewhere mm-hmm. so those are going to be impacted um, the sources of our, of our comfortable lives oh. are oh. threatened because of um, uh, you know and not thinking just on the American soil but on uh, overseas Several years ago, I worked as an extension agriculture agent in a county here in New Mexico. It was during one of the worst droughts we've experienced, and my clients and I used a tool called the Drought Monitor. It's a way to keep track of how severe the climate situation is at any given time. One of Dave's main jobs is to author the New Mexico Drought Monitor, so I asked him to give me some more details. Well, the Drought Monitor was designed to be able to track drought in um, assess it in terms of its impacts and um, to do it on a consistent, um, objective way uh, across the whole country. And that's a really tall order because, um, you know, just think about it. Um, we, we assess drought in Alaska, Hawaii, and Mojave Desert as same as we we assess drought we know it's the same map that we produce in those places as the same as in tampa florida and um in maine <laughs> so think about it you know they all have different precipitation um seasonalities and they all have different impacts different types of agriculture different types and, and just think about all the different things how climate impacts all of those are are in in a mix but but we got to have a consistent way to assess drought Basically, essentially, it's a lack of water, but it's not that simple. You have to look at not only what's falling down, and but and put it into context. Sure. So say we get a quarter inch of rain. Mm-hmm. That may be a, quite a bit for Las Cruces in February, sure. um, but if you get a quarter inch of rain in Seattle, that's not very much in February. So the drought monitor is, is, is a way to... In a, it try to simplify it into a, a, um, a classification. So it goes from D0, so D stands for drought, and it goes from 1, 2, 3, and 4. And as you go higher in number, the, the, the more intense the drought is. So it goes from abnormally dry into that D0, so it's sort of like pre-drought. It's not really drought, but it's kind of, you know, it's getting, it's getting looks looking pretty dry, but it's not. And then you get into D1 where you're starting to see impacts. You just you know things like things drying up in the rangelands. You have to actually add more, a lot more water than you usually go to. All the way to D4, where it's it's the worst case drought, mm-hmm. when things are absolutely failing. People are selling the cattle, and you know things are 
majorly uh, impacted by by drought. You know, it's, and it usually takes a, a little while to get to that point. You know, you have to go through these other stages. So each state has a committee or a group of people who assess what goes on in their state. So they are the experts. Mm -hmm. My office and the National Weather Service in Albuquerque are the author. We're the information gatherers. So we're like hunter gatherers. You know, we got my pitchfork and, <laughs> and spear. We're looking for drought impacts and we, 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 we look for impacts everywhere. When you see browning of trees and um, failure of, um, of native grasses, which we have seen in the past, you know, five, six years, um, that is that is an impact that we need to look at, and so and it's and it's updated every week, and um, and as soon as we're done with that Thursday afternoon, we're we're looking for the next Thursday. I ended by asking Dave if he had advice for how you, my listeners, could get involved in climate or weather science. One thing I am I am right now we are working on is is through uh, monitoring, and it's Kokoraz. And if you don't know what Kokoraz is, it's Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network, and every March. We have a thing called March Madness. We get new new observers in our, our program. So, and if you if you're not familiar with Kokoraz, it's c o c o r a h s dot org. Kokoraz, and it's 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 a wonderful program, and it's very easy to get signed up. It's free to to become a member. You just buy a gauge to participate, and uh, we have um, we have about. A, a, around 500 observers in New Mexico and about 50 or so in Las Cruces. Mm -hmm. And um, those are um, basically they report every day. Most of the time it's zeros. Mm -hmm. So we have this thing called zero hero is uh, you can become a hero even if there's zeros in your gauge. <laughs> and because zero is data. <laughs> zero is data because it tells us that it hasn't rained. So we're trying to get observers everywhere. Want to join Coco Raz and become an observer anywhere in the United States? Just visit their website to create an account, get your gauge, install the app to your smartphone, and become part of Making Science. Links to both Coco Raz and the Drought Monitor will be on my blog. Well, we've made it through another episode here at the Splashcast. Thank you for bearing with my scratchy voice. I will try to get well by the time the March episode comes together. I still want to give huge kudos to my friend Timothy Burns of Curroverse, who created the best logo I could imagine for this show. You can find him and other contributors' links on the blog, thesplashcast.wordpress.com. My theme song for this episode was Atmospheria by Francis Preve. The story themes were Ether Or by The Whole Other and Three Kinds of Suns by Norma Rockwell. All were used under a YouTube free audio license. For more details, visit my blog. You can contribute to our content by participating on the blog, thesplashcast.wordpress.com, or by following the Splashcast on Facebook. Stay well and join me again next time on the Splashcast Podcast.